Good morning. What a privilege it is to be at Wayside. I have heard uh, about you for years, but this is my first opportunity to be here. And uh, it is a privilege to be here. Thank you. I greet you on behalf of Dallas Theological Seminary. We just uh, were out in California, so I'm, I'm readjusting to the heat of Dallas and uh, Texas again. Uh, we have a week each year that we do out in uh, Santa Cruz, just outside of Santa Cruz, California, at a place called Mount Hermon, which I found out this morning is the very place, the very conference ground where your pastor, uh, Dr. Poupard, accepted Christ. And so it uh, is a, a fun connection even back this morning as I chatted with him early this morning. Uh, we were out there for our week. We, this was our 66th year of partnering with Dallas Seminary and Mount Hermon over the years. Uh, goes way back before I was even thought about. And, uh, you know, and so it is a privilege to uh, be there and be back here. I dropped my wife back in Dallas uh, on the way home yesterday afternoon from Santa, San Jose and uh, then boarded a plane and came down here last night to be uh, here. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, the ministry that you hold here in San Antonio. Uh, thank you for uh, holding the Word of God high, and uh, we counted a partnership with our alums all over the world. Uh, we have a, a number on the, your staff. We have a number in the city. Uh, we have uh, a number in 101 countries of the world, and uh, there's not a time zone uh, on the planet where we don't have a Dallas grad opening the Word of God, teaching or preaching Scripture uh, to God's people and seeing people come to Christ. Uh, we're in our 92nd year at DTS, and uh, we have about 100 students more coming in this fall than we had last fall. And so we keep growing and uh, keep uh, expanding, and especially through our online presence and our uh, extension sites, one of which is here in San Antonio. So it's a privilege to uh, represent the seminary and bring you greetings for our campus. And uh, uh, we, we are in weird times, if you uh, haven't figured that out. And especially the, uh, the last uh, events of the last uh, four or five weeks and the ripple effect uh, all over the world about uh, what uh, the United States, in 1973, we decided to redefine life and say it didn't matter uh, in the womb. And now, 50 years later, we've redefined marriage. And we have uh, an incredible challenge before us. And as I was asked uh, to uh, give you a topic and give you a passage uh, a, a week or two ago when we were uh, finalizing the details for this time, uh, I couldn't help going back to a passage that uh, has become more meaningful in my life over the last year especially, and that's Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Acts chapter 17? Because uh, never before has the challenge been greater, never before has the need been uh, deeper for us uh, to proclaim a truth in a contrary culture. Uh, I'm, I'm not a pessimist, uh, I'm a realist, and uh, I sound at times now like I'm channeling my grandfather when I talk to my sons and my uh, daughter-in-laws that uh, uh, when I was a child and when I was young, this is the way it was. But I was teaching an executive Bible study to a group of business leaders in Dallas, uh, and I was teaching them the book of Ecclesiastes. And, uh, and we just uh, had come through a, a moment in our history where they were pretty discouraged uh, with what was going on in the, uh, in the country. And uh, I opened uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and it says, uh, he is not wise who says this was the way it used to be. 
I don't know about you, but there, there are parts of Scripture, uh, I'm, I know I'm to love it, but I don't like it. Uh, that, that's one of those. And, uh, and so as, as, you, as you see uh, uh, our world and as you see things change, it ought not to surprise us because the Bible predicted these times. Uh, that as we got closer and closer to the time of the Lord's return, it would get weirder and weirder. And if I can be poor in my grammar, badder and badder. It would be worse and worse. And yet, uh, God has left us here, and we have a challenge that's never been greater, and if I can say this, an opportunity that's never been better. And so I'm here this morning to encourage you uh, through a challenge out of the life of Paul in a setting in which he was facing a contrary culture. If you have Acts 17 open uh, before you, uh, the city of, of Athens was and still is known the world over for its magnificent art and architecture. Uh, the art, however, characteristically portrayed the exploits of various gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon. And most of the impressive buildings were temples to pagan gods. Uh, I want to show you a, a picture. This is what's called the Acropolis. Acro meaning higher and polis from city. And so the higher portion of the city uh, is the, the upper city, and that's where the action took place, uh, the action of highest government, and, the, and, and in the olden days, the action of highest worship. Uh, there's a drawing that I want to show you of what the city might have looked like at the time of Paul. Obviously, the most impressive structure on it is the Parthenon, and that uh, is the most famous building. I have relatives that live in Nashville, and they have an imitation of the Parthenon that's been built and reproduced in, in uh, Nashville. But uh, uh, the, the Parthenon is a phenomenal architectural, one of those seven wonders of the world, and it's been a centerpiece of the Greek culture. It's obviously iconic in terms of its uh, uh, you know, representation of the city itself. But what had been a centerpiece of Greek culture had declined, even at the time of Paul, to a city of about 5,000 people. In Acts 17, we have the record of what one writer said was a short conversation with a small crowd in a shrunken city. Uh, I, I want to give you, uh, do it a little bit different this morning, I want to give you a thesis statement. And, and it's from this passage, and then I, I want to unfold it out of this passage with you. But I, I believe we need a generation of Christians who have troubled spirits and a willingness to engage a conflicted culture with the proclamation of truth in spite of the uh, responses one might see. Let me state that again. We, we need a new generation of Christians who have troubled spirits. Are you bothered? Are you upset by what's going on? Good. That's really good. It's biblical. And we're going to find that out today. It's biblical for you to be upset. But it's not biblical for you to stay upset and just to stay there. Because with that upset, that divine upset, we need to have a troubled spirit, but we also have a, a need to, to engage and a willingness to engage a conflicted culture with the proclamation of truth in spite of the responses that you and I might experience. I, I want you to see that Paul had a provoked spirit. First of all, he had a provoked spirit. What, what Paul saw caused him to do what Paul did. 
I want you to see it in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Now, who's the them? If you go back in the context, we're on the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He has crossed the, uh, uh, the continental boundary with the vision of Macedonia. He went to Philippi, and we have the account of the Philippian jailer and Lydia who gets saved and a demonic girl, and what a way to start a church. This was a church plant, Pastor, a church plant with a, 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 a jailer uh, who just came to Christ, uh, a demoniac lady who had just been delivered out of evil spirits, and an international seller of purple which was a dye that was made from the the snail shells, very exquisite and very expensive. And she was from Thyatira. They call it Theatira in Turkey today. But uh, Lydia uh, was there. And so it's those three that became the basis for a church in Philippi. Paul went from Philippi down to Thessalonica, uh, from Thessalonica down to Berea, Uh, and and sort of had opposition all along the way as he encountered the Jews and the Gentiles and had a mixed response, which has always been the response. And he comes down to Athens, but he left Silas and, and he left Timothy back there in Berea, and he's waiting for them to come down. And so while he's waiting for them, it says in verse uh, 16, that his spirit was provoked within him because he was beholding the city full of idols literally under the idols, under the influence of idolatry. Paul, being a Jew in his strong monotheistic background, had a distaste normally as a Jew for graven images, let alone as a Christian. Luke, the physician, uses a very interesting term to describe Paul's upset spirit. It's a word we get our word paroxysm in English from it. Paroxo is the, paroxuno is the Greek verb. And and it literally means to sharpen and figuratively means to arouse, to excite, to stimulate in a negative sense, hence provoke, uh, irritate, or cause to be upset. The tense of the verb is that that was a constant feeling that Paul has. He's in Corinth. There he is at Athens. And here's all the idolatry surrounding him. And if I can say it in the marginal translation, he's ticked off. That's Greek, okay? Not really, okay? And, and, and he's, he's being constantly bothered by this. So if our culture and the decisions... I, I was sick to my stomach when I, when I saw the, the, the uh, White House in rainbow colors moments after the decision, which means it had been planned ahead of time. And it took him four days to acknowledge the, uh, the recruits that got killed in Chattanooga. That ticked me off. That bothers me, okay? That bothers me, let alone the decision. On that, uh, that afternoon of the decision, I was sitting and I was texting back and forth with Dr. Bach, our, our uh, professor uh, who has a specialty in the area of cultural engagement. And we were reading the uh, decision that had just come down and, and I'm reading through it and he's reading through it and we're, we're selecting portions and sending them back and forth to each other. And we put out a statement by the end of the day that uh, the DTS stands Uh, for biblical marriage. It stands for biblical sexuality. I had no idea. I'm not into social media as a person, but I had no idea the effect of that. Uh, Within 24 hours, we had had 400,000 hits and uh, repetitions of that statement. 
Schools have adopted it. Churches have adopted it. I was speaking at the Church of the Open Door in L.A. Uh, that, after, or that, that next weekend, uh, just two days later, and all of their young people had texted it, and had, it was a, a, a topic of conversation in the missions department, uh, both at Biola as well as at Azusa Pacific. Uh, we, 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 we ought to be bothered by those kinds of things in our culture, but it ought not to stop there. And so uh, I want to welcome you, if I can say this, welcome you to a first century experience this morning. And I think we're going to experience a first century experience in the days ahead. Notice it says he was infuriated, but what he saw made him do what he did. Second is a willingness to engage. There's a willingness to engage what, what Paul saw is why he did what he did, both with his audience and with, we're going to use the term, apologetics, and I want to explain that term in a moment. But his audience was the culture. Look at verse 17 with me. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, notice the audience, with the Jews, Paul being a Jew, to, you know, the gospel is the power of God, to the Jew first, Paul took the gospel to the Jew first, each time he went to a city, he started with the synagogue, his own people. He went to the Jews, and then God-fearing Gentiles, God-respecting Gentiles. Now notice, that's the audience more officially at the religious level, but and in the marketplace every day with those who just happen to be present. Notice his intentionality and the incidental conversations that would come up about his faith. You see the people, you see the places, both civil and religious, and the frequency, almost on a daily basis, a conversation would come up. I was sitting on a Friday afternoon with a businessman. He and his wife have just retired and moved into a, uh, a retirement center, one of those three stages. It starts with an apartment and assisted and then full care living. And, and he has a passion to reach that place. Uh, it's, it's full of ex-military. It was primarily designed for the military uh, retirees, and then they've opened it up. And it's out in, in Northern California. And so we're having a conversation, and his whole passion as a retired man is, how do I get the gospel to that center? And, and so we were talking uh, about the, the, the kinds of things that he could do. Almost every day the conversation comes up about what's your background, what do you think, what do you, what do you, you know, just daily conversation. So we were talking about what one of our grads, Bill Peel, talks about in his book about how do you share, uh, you know, live and share your faith at work. You know, you run up a flag with a comment and see if anybody salutes it. And, and then you follow it up uh, offline. You don't take work time away, obviously, from your boss to do that. But uh, you, uh, maybe somebody has somebody who's in trouble. You say, you know what, I'd, I'd be glad to pray for you if, that, if you'd like me to do that. Well, that sends a flag up the pole that maybe allows a, few, a future conversation. Very creative in a number of ways. And, and so, so Paul, obviously, as an apostle, a tent-making, you know, a bivocational minister, is, is taking the gospel as God wants him to the, to the culture. But what, what's his apologetic? I want you to see this. Uh, apologetics uh, is not, I'm sorry. Uh, in uh, theological language, apologetics is a defense of the faith. Uh, years ago, we had Alistair McGrath uh, uh, come from across the sea to uh, give us the lectures at our stately, excuse me, our Griffith Thomas lectureship at Dallas Seminary. And, and he said this, apologetics can be thought of as having two components. On the one hand, it concerns the countering of objections to the Christian faith. 
And on the other, it concerns setting out the attractiveness of the gospel. It thus has a negative pull and a positive pull. Negatively, it means to be able to handle the objections to Christianity which one encounters in the media, the shopping mall, and elsewhere. It means being able to give effective responses to hard questions people ask about Christianity. Sometimes those objections are spurious, other times they're real problems, which discourage those individuals from coming to a living faith in Christ. And trained Christians can make a difference here by helping them see that the problem is not as serious as they thought. Positively, apologetics is setting out, and I love this, the full wonder of the gospel of salvation. It's like unpacking a series of wonderful gifts and marveling at their beauty. Helping people understand the full glory of what the gospel offers. Often meaning means taking the trouble to explain the central ideas of the Christian faith to people who may recognize the words, but not the reality that they represent. You see, there, there's a need to, to counter the objections to Christianity, and there's good answers to those objections. And they've never come more forcefully, and they've never come more frontally. Almost every Easter or Christmas on the Discovery Channel, you have a quote-unquote religious program, but it's attacking the veracity of the Scriptures almost every time. But more importantly for you and me, for me, it's to be able to tell the story well of the grace of God. You see, Paul was living out his claim to the Corinthians, I've become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. John Stott put it this way, one cannot help admiring Paul's ability to speak with equal facility to the religious people of the synagogue, to casual passerbys in the city square, and to highly sophisticated philosophers both in the agora, or the agora market, and when they met in council. See, Paul had a provoked spirit, but he had a willingness to engage. Now, what did he engage this is what I find so fascinating, and I need to let you know, I've never been more excited about my Bible study than I am today. The more I read my Bible, the more I do an aha of why God put his word together like he did. And I've never been more impressed how contemporary it is becoming for my own life as I live in this culture. Let, let me explain. As, as Paul is talking, notice the text in verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Now, here's Paul. He's in Corinth, okay? He's in Athens. Excuse me, not in Corinth. He's in Greece. He's in Athens, okay? Uh, and, uh, and he's near the Parthenon, and he's conversing with two philosophical groups. And some were saying, what could this idle babbler wish to say? Notice the disrespect. The disrespect from the philosophical community against Paul, who's no slouch, by the way, trained at the feet of Gamaliel in law of the Jewish you know, people, etc. And, and they call him an, an idle babbler. Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. You know, he's teaching false religion. And because he was preaching, watch this, Jesus and the central core of the Christian faith, which is the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. I'm going to come back to that the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. We, we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. A little parenthesis that Luke puts in, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That was sort of the water cooler experience of the day. What's new? 
What do you think? Got a new idea, new philosophy? What's going on in your life? That's the background. Now, let me take a moment because the two competing philosophies that Paul confronted or that confronted Paul controlled Athenian thought at the time. And, uh, and ironically, they're mutually contradictory. They're a conflicted culture of their own. L- let me explain. The Epicureans came from Epicurus. He lived in 341 to 270 BC. His background or his ideas were hedonistic. Life only goes around once. Get all the gusto you can get. Have you ever heard that before? You know, pleasure, pleasure, free from pain, disturbing passions and fear. God is very far away from everyday life. He really doesn't matter. He really doesn't care. It's just pleasure-oriented. Get what you get. Get it now because it might be gone tomorrow. That's Epicurean. On the other side were the Stoics. Now, that doesn't come from a guy by the name of Stoic, but uh, it's Zeno of Cyprus, same basic time frame, almost identical lifespan to Epicurus. Uh, his background and his thought was primarily pantheistic. God is in everything. God's here. God's in the floor. God's in the desk. God's in the, in the, in the communion plate. Okay? God's everywhere there is to be in, in, in everything. It's pantheistic, almost animalistic. He's rationalistic and fatalistic. Some of you grew up and uh, you remember Doris Day singing, K Sarah, Sarah. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. K Sarah, Sarah. Whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's fatalism. Now, you couldn't get more diametrically opposed to God is absolutely utter and other, transcendent, and God is absolutely imminent and only imminent. You couldn't get more, you know, from, from very stoic to, 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 to very poised. Uh, to very hedonistic, totally opposite. But both are mutually contradictory to Christianity. Now, let me take you one generation back. Jesus is on the scene in the Gospels, and you get a group who are pro-Roman, political party, called the Herodians. Pro-Roman, pro-Herod, who was the appointed king in the region. And on the other side, you get the Pharisees who were the nitpicky legalists of the Jewish faith. They were the protectors of the Jewish faith. Totally opposite in their ideas, ideals, philosophies, but they become bedfellows and get together as partners to do away with Jesus. Hmm. Welcome to the first century. What do we have in the 21st century? Think about it. On one end of the scale, atheism, popular atheism. There is no God, can't be a God. Why would there ever want to be a God? And on the other end of the scale is, is pluralism, which means there's all kinds of religions and they're all okay. Now, you can't get more polar opposite than no God and many gods. But the irony in our culture is both of those are acceptable, but Jesus isn't. Because you know why? A confrontation with Christ means life and eternity are going to change for you. And he can't be popular in a culture of do your own thing. You know, we have this thing, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. I love what Ravi Zacharias, the Christian philosopher, says. Just tell, when somebody tells you that, just tell them you're wrong. <laughs> because if I'm right that I'm right, then you're wrong that I'm right. <laughs> You'll think about that this afternoon. It's a fun one, okay? 
Speaking of the challenge in engaging our present world, journalist Walter Truett Anderson put it this way, never before has any civilization made available to its populace such a smorgasbord of realities. And never before has a communication system like the contemporary mass media made information about religion, all religions available to so many people. And never has a society allowed people to become consumers of belief and allowed belief, in fact, all beliefs, to become merchandise. Anderson states that America has become the belief basket of the world. I mean, with an iPad or your phone, you can get anything from anybody, anywhere. It's all available. And that's why we're all confused. Because uh, who's right and who's wrong and why becomes the question. The irony is that uh, we, we have this uh, atheism on the one side and pluralism on the other. In between atheism and uh, Christianity is secularism. I'm not going to say there's no God, but let's just keep him out of everything. So we sort of make the, the, the public square devoid of any talk of deity. On this side, the irony is with pluralism and between Christianity and pluralism, are you ready for this? There's even what's called Christian spiritism, which is a mixture between Satanism and Christianity because people just like the religious language of both. We're, we're living in a very conflicted culture. And everything is tolerable <laughs> except Jesus because that's a confrontation with truth. And so as we watch in this passage, we, we, we see, and, and we, I would say, need the call, the clarion call of the Cambridge Declaration that came out years ago. Listen to it. They said, the loss of God's centrality in the life of today's church is common and lamentable. It's this loss that allows us to transform worship into entertainment, gospel preaching into marketing, believing into technique, being good into, being good into feeling good about ourselves, and faithfulness into being successful. As a result, and I love their statement, God, Christ, and the Bible have, become, have come to mean too little to us and to rest too inconsequentially upon us. It's time for the church men and women to be the church. And it's time for the church to start looking more and more like Christ rather than the culture. A troubled spirit is what Paul saw. A willingness to engage is what Paul did. A conflicted culture is what Paul faced. But what did he say? If you have your Bibles, look at verses 22 to 31 with me. I want to just overview it. He made a powerful proclamation. He engaged his audience, now watch this, without surrendering a bit of biblical truth. Now listen, without quoting a single passage of Scripture. Now here's what's fun. When you read the book of Acts, when Paul was with Jews who had a background with the Scriptures, he was quoting Scriptures like crazy. When he was with different audiences throughout the rest of the book of Acts, he took the Christian message and made it relevant to them. If they had a background in Scripture, he quoted Scripture. If they didn't, he still taught theology. If they were obsessed with power, he was going to talk about real power. It was a phenomenal model of how to engage the culture with the truth of Scripture. Now, why he doesn't quote, while he doesn't quote one passage in his speech at Mars Hill, this is what's called the Areopagus. He's, he, they take him to Mars Hill, and this is where he does his talk. 
And uh, with, uh, if you stood at Mars Hill, I don't know whether we have a picture of Mars Hill uh, on there or not, guys, but uh, uh, there it is. There's Mars Hill. If you stood at Mars Hill and just back over your right shoulder, if you look down at the city this way, just back over your right shoulder would be the Parthenon. Now, that's important for what he's going to say. So I wanted to put a position it for you. He, he begins by calling God the Almighty Creator. Look at verse 24. With God is the one who made the world and then wound it up and let it go on its own. You don't have that in your text? You don't have him just winding up the clock and letting it, letting it run on yours? No, no. He made the world and all things in it. The cosmos and the creatures. See, he starts with creation, and he doesn't dodge that. God is the one who made the world and everything in it. He's the almighty creator. That's not all. He goes on, in, in, in uh, number two is he's the universal Lord. He, he's so almighty, he can't be confined in a shrine. He can't be confined to a shrine. Since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. God is not confined to the heart nor the art of humanity. And so here's this Parthenon where they thought the, the deities dwelt, and he says, no, 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 you need to know God outstrips anything you've worshipped up here on this hill. God's bigger and better than that. He's the almighty creator. He's the universal Lord. Number three, he's the bountiful giver. He who supplies our need doesn't need our supply for his. See, look at verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life to all and breath and he gives uh, to all life and breath and all things. While God wants our worship, he doesn't have to have it. God's complete in and of himself. The reason he wants it is for a relationship that we could have with him. He, he was self-sufficient, totally on his own, totally doing fine all eternity past. And he didn't have to create us. He didn't have to make us. But are you ready for this? He wanted us. But he doesn't need us. And so the independence, the, he is the bountiful giver of all things. Number four, he's the sovereign sustainer of all. He's the sovereign sustainer of all. He, he's not sustained by any. Verse 26. Now don't miss this one. This one's going to be important for the culture Already we've got Christian colleges dodging a historical Adam, ignoring the opening chapters of Genesis because they think it's mythological. They think it's poetic myth. Pro problem is in the Hebrew text, it's neither poetry nor is it myth in its style and genre. It's historical narrative. And you, ha you have him, he made from one, look at verse 26, he made from one, that's Adam, Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. See, he's the sovereign sustainer. He, from one man, created the world of people. You see, the Greeks prided themselves as being superior to all non-Greeks, whom they called barbarians. But Paul affirms here, and it's about time we as the church understood, that there is a common origin and if somebody asks for your race, I, I have a challenge for you. Just put down human. <laughs> yeah, if they want my ethnicity, that's a different issue. But if they want my race, it's human. There's only one race, and it's the human race. 
And there is no, and especially in Christ, all of that has, you know, distinction for pride's sake has been eliminated. There's no Jew or Greek. That doesn't mean there aren't Jews and not Greeks, but it doesn't matter in Christ. And he tells us, but it's about time we understood that there is one race and it's human. And he affirms a common origin and Adam and hence argues against racial and sectarian pride. That's a whole other discussion for another message. Number five. He's the divine designer. He's the divine designer. He's separate from his creation, but he's intimately concerned about it. Look at verse 27. Why is he all of this, and why has he done this? Why has God created? Why has he designed? Why does he sustain? Watch this, purpose clause, that they should seek God. See, God's the author of the ultimate seeker movement, (laughs) Uh, but he's the one who started it. Romans 3.11, no man seeks after God on his own. God's the one who did it all so that they would seek him. Now watch, here he's going after the philosophers standing on either side of him. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets says, we're God's offspring. I guess so. See, the poets got it right. We are the offspring of God as far as his creation is concerned. So he quotes one of their poets as a part of his apologetic to say, you know, even in your literature, if you'd pay attention, there's references to the relationship that God has with his creation. See, one of, one of, the, one of the things by eliminating God out of the classroom, and now we're having to eliminate all the classics out of the classroom because too many of them mention God. You know, even in the literature of humanity, it's filled with references to God as creator and benefactor. Number six, he's the eternal father. Look at the theology he's laying out. Creator, universal Lord, sovereign, sustainer, divine designer, eternal father. He says, being therefore the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. So you don't think about God confined in the shrines up on the hill, Paul says. You need to think differently. See, he's confronting wrong theology and asking them to think better about God than they have thought about him. But watch where this concludes. There's two. One, he's the gracious redeemer. God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, Peter picked up from Jesus. And Paul reiterates it here. Look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Who's on the heart of God? Everyone. Where? Everywhere. Everyone, everywhere is on the heart of God. And in the Acts context, repentance is to change your mind about God, change your mind about yourself. You can't live separately. You can't live independently. You can't save yourself. Repentance is saying no to your self way of salvation and yes to God's way of salvation. Hebrews 6.1 has it good. Uh, repentance, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's the turn. That's the repentance of the New Testament. But he wants it everywhere. And he wants everybody. God's not willing that any should perish. Will some perish? Absolutely. The book of Revelation teaches that. Why? Because every time he reached out his hand, whether in grace or in temporary judgment, They would not repent. They would not repent. Well, what happens if he's the redeemer? What happens if they say no? 
He says he's also, number eight, the righteous judge. That Jesus, to, to Jesus, God has delegated the right to exercise judgment. Look at verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, Romans 2, the declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection of the dead. My friend Al Mohler, who is the president of uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, says it this well. Says this well. He says, every true theologian is an evangelist, and every true evangelist is a theologian. Christianity is not a truth to be affirmed, but a gospel to be received. Nevertheless, this gospel possesses content and presents both truth claims that demand our keenest arguments and boldest proclamation. Moved by the sight of idols, Paul preached Christ and then called for belief. Now, what's the point? The point is time is limited. God has been gracious. Repentance is urgent. Righteous judgment is certain. Jesus is the judge. The resurrection is the crowning evidence. To deny any of this for whatever personal or philosophical reason, God says, would be disastrous. See, this is an urgent message. Paul had a provoked spirit, but he had a willingness to engage a conflicted culture with the proclamation of the truth. But watch this, in spite of the responses, in spite of the responses that he would see. That's still the major challenge, so I repeat it. We need a generation of Christians who have troubled spirits. If you feel bad today, good, but don't stop there. Get equipped be determined to engage the culture with a proclamation of truth in spite of the range of responses that you'll see. Now, I want you to see the range of responses. This is where I get this. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection and the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we want to hear more about this. We want to hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite. I love this guy. He, he's known by hanging out at Mars Hill. I sort of love this guy. He, he's been there so long and has been engaged so long, they just call him the Mars Hill guy. That's what Areopagus means, Mars Hill. And some delayed. But Areopagite, Dionysius, and a woman named Damaris, and with some others with them, believed. See, there's the spectrum. So let me give you three quick applications, and we wrap this up. Number one, in the face of rejection, in the face of rejection, when people are sneering about the resurrection and they're sneering about Christ, you and I need to have courage. Now think, as a father, if you met my two boys, Josh and Jeremy, two of my best friends, uh, and, and if you saw them and then you said to them, your dad is not Mark Bailey. Or if you said to me, those aren't your sons. The last thing I'm going to do is go, really? I'm sorry you don't believe that. <laughs> I'd laugh at you, almost. I'd say it doesn't matter what you believe, that doesn't change the facts. Just because re people reject God doesn't deny God. Just because people reject Jesus doesn't make Jesus illegitimate. There's a need for courage in the face of rejection. Second, in light of the future conversations, there's a need for patience. 
How many of you came to Christ the first time you ever heard the gospel? Let me see your hands. Look around. Why should you get discouraged then when somebody says no the first time you talk to them? Almost none of you came to Christ the first conversation. Aren't you glad there were future conversations? Amen. For how many of you was at least a couple-year conversation between you and God and you and others? Let me see your hands. Took you over a year. Look at your hands. Now, some of you haven't raised your hands, so maybe you cut within the year, okay? You say, no, well, if that's not, God loves you, and we have a wonderful plan for your life, okay? In light of future conversations, there's a need for great patience. But I love this. In the event of faith, there's a need for great joy. Great joy. That great parable Jesus tells, he says, uh, when one sinner repents, there's more joy in all of heaven. When one sinner repents, there's the chorus of the angels that strikes up. When one sinner repents, the Father throws the great party. When there is even one person who comes to faith, it's time for rejoicing. Joining the heart the chorus and the band of God in saying, yeah. Would you pray with me? Father, we could easily get discouraged in a culture that is turning its back upon you. But welcome. You would say welcome to the first century. Because if your gospel can be birthed and flourish in the first century, when the emperors were demanding that they be worshipped even as God, we're not quite there yet. And therefore, there's hope for us. But the hope is not in ourselves, it's not in our culture, it's not in our world, it's in you. Because the message of your son is true. And I pray this morning, if there's one here that hasn't yet trusted your son, Jesus Christ, as their savior, they would say yes. Jesus, I welcome you into my heart and into my life. I want you to be my savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead that demonstrated who you really were. I welcome you. I want to be a follower of yours. And Father, for those for us for whom that's been a previous decision of our lives, would you give us boldness, give us courage, give us patience, and help us not lose the joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.